Eric, thanks for coming on Influencers. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you live in Utrecht, which I know I can't pronounce correctly, but is there a more beautiful cycling city in all the, in all the world than that? I doubt it. It is the cycling capital of the world. We've got a lot of cyclists going around. Beautiful old canals, but also cycling highways where you can really get the speed up. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to live and to cycle in. Absolutely. Okay, so you co-founded Circular Cycling in 2018 and you started building bikes in from boxes, as you describe it. So what, what is a box? What do you mean by that? A box, and this is something that every road cyclist, mountain bike, will probably recognize. A box with bike parts that are too good to throw away, but you will likely never use again. And these are perfectly fine parts, which could be resources for new bikes. And uh, that's the reason, well, and that, was a, that was a way to find found circular cycling as an experiment to see how the cycling industry as a whole could do better when it comes to sustainable material use. Well, guilty as charged, I've actually got two cycling boxes and I am an old roadie, so I know exactly what you mean with those alloy stems that you paid so much or the saddle that doesn't quite, quite fit. But unfortunately you found that building bikes from boxes wasn't sustainable as a business for you. Why, what was, what was the missing link or why wasn't it ultimately sustainable? Correct. So we started the business because cycling as a mode of transport is sustainable, right? So if you replace a car with a bike, you're not having the CO2 emissions, good way for society. But road cycling and mountain biking is not that sustainable at all because you buy a lot of parts, bikes, apparel to do a sport. You might even fly somewhere to go cycling for a weekend. There's nothing sustainable about this. And our frustration was that we were spending a serious amount of our disposable income on bikes and parts and there was no way to do this in a sustainable way. And that's how we came up with the idea of circular cycling to start experimenting how the cycling industry could do better. And we assumed that getting all these bike parts together, we could design new bikes with pre-used parts based on the assumption that bike parts are compatible with each other. And even for road bikes from the 2000s with round seat tubes, um, 10 or 9 speed cassettes which fit on the same wheel set etc we found that it was very hard to do so and while we were doing this 12 speed was introduced 13 speed was introduced disc brakes were introduced uh, companies started to use integrated seat posts handlebars with cables inside and it just became impossible to mix and match these parts and to build new bikes from resources from various different brands so apart from not being the best entrepreneur, which is an interesting thing to find out as well, um, we realized that this was just not a good business model and we needed to try something else to change the industry. Okay, and we'll, we'll move to your book now, okay, Circular Cycling, which I guess, what, what year was that released? Uh, 2020. 2020. So okay. we spent two years trying to build these bikes, the upcycles as we call them, realized that this was not working, and then we sat down and wrote down all our lessons in the book From Marginal Gains to a Circular Revolution. And that was two years ago now. Okay, the first concept that really grabbed me in that book was the concept of the tragedy of the commons. Can you explain what is the tragedy of the commons? Yeah, so the commons used to be a uh, shared piece of land where villagers would put their sheep in 
And as long as you keep the number of sheep to a certain level, the grass gets the opportunity to recover every year so the sheep have enough to eat. But if someone decides, hey, I'm going to put in an extra sheep because I can then harvest more wool, for example, then the grass will not be able to uh, recover quick enough. And eventually all of the sheep will die because one person started what's called free riding, introducing more sheep. And then his neighbor thought, well, he's doing that, so I might as well do that too. I'll put in another sheep. And uh, that's the, the sort of the theoretical way of its, of its first, uh, first person that introduces Hardy. Um, some 40 years ago, I think now 50 years ago. But it's also the same for, for doping, for example. If one rider in a peloton starts using doping, he goes faster and the rest thinks, hey, this is not good, but I need that too, so I might as well start doing that as well. Um, so the tragedy of the commons, once you start to recognize it, it's all around us and it's a very tough nut to crack. There's a chart in the book that shows the amount of energy and the amount of water required for each kilogram of popular frame materials like carbon and aluminium in particular. Yeah. Um, are, are people that you talk to in your presentations or people who read the book surprised at what, what that reveals? Yes, I know. I think we should have even written it down better in the book. But if I explain now in the presentation and specialized in a life cycle analysis a few years ago, and I'm not sure if it's perfect, but it gives you a good indication of what's going on. You need about 1600 kilowatt hours of electricity to produce a one kilogram aluminium frame. And the average household in the Netherlands uses about 3000 kilowatt hours of electricity per year for their lights, their TV, their fridges, etc. So half of that is used, required to make a one kilogram aluminium frame. Half of that, so 1600. 1600. 100, yeah, yeah. 1600 kilowatts. Just for one yeah. kilogram of aluminium frame. Um, and we often forget that stuff is made somewhere and requires a whole lot of energy to produce it. Uh, and it's so easy to buy it and also so easy to just throw it away because, well, you know, it's just aluminium. But uh, when it comes to sustainability, the supply chain, so the way products are made, transported stuff, is where the real impact lies. And if you want to, in that sense, clean up your own life, then being considerate about what sort of stuff you buy, where does it come from and how long do you use it, is very important to reduce your negative impact on, for example, CO2 emissions. And what's the story with a kilogram of carbon fiber? How does that compare with a kilogram of aluminium? It's probably even worse to produce it, so even more energy intensive. Um, it's also harder or even impossible to recycle, but it is a wonderful material for making, for making bikes. And it's also a material that can be repaired. So if you crash with your carbon fiber bike, there's a good chance that you can get your frame repaired. Whereas an aluminium frame might be either dented and still usable or might be unusable and unrepairable. So there's something to be said for every single frame material, which one is best for which purpose. Um, but again, making sure that it lasts long is the most important thing to, to think about. It's pretty sobering statistics there that for a bike rider to hear that, you know, yes, we're way more user-friendly, environmentally friendly than car driving perhaps, but we're still consuming a lot of resources um, in, our, in our cycling habit, if you like. So you talk about four reasons that bike manufacturing companies uh, should act on your call for circular cycling economy. Would you like to just very briefly 
just summarize those four key reasons? Yeah, so the first is a really simple one, right? Our planet is suffering from the way we consume stuff and climate change is already happening. Um, from Australia, the bushfires from a couple of years ago, they were bad. Same thing is happening now in Europe again. Temperatures over 40 degrees in the Netherlands are not normal. So we want to avoid collectively, I think, global warming to happen. And for that, we really need to make sure that our CO2 emissions are going to drop really soon. Governments are helping. So they're getting more regulations in place. Uh, CO2 taxes, uh, the way, for example, batteries need to be replaceable in the EU for, uh, within a few years time. Uh, you will need to supply more information about what is in the product and whether it's recyclable, yes or no, etc. So more government regulation. An important one is also the financing. So um, pension funds, etc. start to really think about what sort of company they're investing in, whether they are a sustainable company, yes or no. Cycling used to be on the sustainable side, but once they start to dig deeper and they know that the cycling industry is not doing enough on this front, they might soon backtrack and say, well, cycling industry is really not such a good investment. Then there is your employees. Uh, I think a lot of people really like to work for a company that does something good for the planet. And just building bicycles is no longer enough. And then there's your customers, which realize that something needs to be done as well. And they will want to spend their money different in the future uh, if they get the opportunity to do so. That's similar to the outdoor industry. If you walk into an uh, outdoor shop to buy a new uh, jacket, if you go, uh, I don't know, hiking, for example, Every single brand has got some sort of labeling on it showing that they do better than their previous product or better than a competition. So you can spend your money differently. And that is not possible in the cycling industry at the moment. But it's just a matter of time before the first brands will start to do so. And if you're not one of them, you're probably going to lose business. Okay, so we're close, but we're not quite there. You're saying it's just a matter of time. Of those reasons, what do you think the one that will prize the door open What's the one that you should be pushing on or we should be pushing on now that you think will be the most compelling right now to get those bike companies to change? I think it's the employees. Really? Yeah, it's really funny. Really? I mean, we're, the book made a lot of people realize that something needs to be done. But then what you see is a lot of people working in the cycling are cycling cyclists themselves. So they, they go out in nature, very con conscious about what's going on right there. And as soon as you give them the opportunity to do something different and really work on creating sustainable products, there's like, they live up and they think, wow, this is cool. This is what I want to work for. And I'm convinced that all the talent in the cycling industry at some point will want to work for a company that's really making effort on this. So if you're after talent, this better be on your agenda. Wow, absolutely. Now, another chart that's fascinating, you talk about pre-use, post-use value chart. And it goes from a 30 euros worth of materials to a 3,000 euro finished bicycle and then potentially all the way down to two and a half euros of recyclable material. That's, that's a remarkable uh, transformation and something pr people probably don't realize that, that variation. What, what would you say um, another revelation of that also is that recycling, the buzzword, is actually like the last resort, isn't it? You, yep. don't, you don't even want to get to that point, do you? No. No, recycling, and even then, recycling is not really recycling. I mean, what happens if you throw your, what, what happens if you throw your bike away? Hopefully you bring it to the local recycling station. And then you stand there and you think, okay, I've got this carbon fiber bike with some aluminium and some steel on it, where should it go? And then the guy at the recycling station says, put it in the metals bin. So you do so. But then 
no one's going to separate these materials, right? So it needs to be the process, assuming that there is a process for recycling, to do that for you. And they have to be able to separate all the plastics and the metals from the carbon fiber in order to get to a recycling stream that is valuable, worthwhile actually recycling. And this is really tough. There are no machines that are able to, to separate a carbon fiber rim, a brass nipple, a steel spoke, an aluminum hub with steel bearings in there. Separating that is more or less impossible. So even if you think you put it in the right bin for recycling, a lot of that stuff still ends up in an incinerator or a landfill because it doesn't make it to the end of the recycling process and be melted down into new aluminum or new steel. So what? So we don't want to get to that point. So what should we be doing instead? We as in the whole, the circular economy, the bigger picture, not even beyond the individual. So the first thing is really make sure that the product lasts for as long as possible by taking good care of it, but also by making it possible to take good care of it. So make a bicycle that is easy to maintain and repair, that is upgradable if necessary, uh, and that is also possible to uh, sort of control the quality if you want to bring it to the next user. Because at some point you might say, well, I want to go from a road bike to a gravel bike. You want to sell that road bike to someone who's going to use it for another lifetime in a reuse phase. Um, maybe you need to refurbish that. So that's what we did at Circular Cycling. We took it apart, we did a full quality check, we replaced some parts, bring it back into the store, refurbishment. Or if that's not possible, bring it back to the factory for remanufacturing. So for example, a battery or a frame set that could potentially last forever, bring it back to the original manufacturer, strip the paint, repaint it, bring it to the shop as a new product. So we try to keep the value of the product at the highest possible level in order to make it a business case to bring the materials back and use them longer. I think I might jump to a concept now that you have about the four platforms, or I think you call them, no, platform, powertrain, computer, consumables, all linked to an online passport. This was this is a pretty radical piece of thinking, <laughs> yeah. a pretty original piece of thinking, but would you like to explain those four elements in this concept of the online passport? Yeah. So. In the book, we describe how the circular economy might work for a road bike and a mountain bike or a commuter bike or a helmet is very different. So we're just focusing on the road bike here. And what we found is that people want to own something, especially when a road bike, uh, you need it to be exactly your fit. And it's no point in, in sharing it with someone else. It needs to be your bike. It also sort of the canvas for your ego. You want your paint job. You want big letters or small letters on top of it. I don't know. Um, so you want to buy that, but you don't want to be responsible for the boring stuff, the drivetrain, the wheel set, because it's more or less standard. You just want it to work. And currently, the manufacturers don't have an incentive to make sure that that will last forever. It's the other way around. As soon as your chain wears, you need to replace your cassette as well. Top, it's business, selling more stuff. Once you change that around, because you don't want more materials, you want less materials because it's less environmental impact. So if you could buy your platform, so handlebar, stem, frame set, seat post and seat, that provides the fit. And then get the rest of all the components in a pay for performance basis. So you pay for a monthly basis or per kilometer for the use of your powertrain, the wheel set and the group set. Um, also pay for a computer. I'll get to that later. And then you've got the consumables, so your tires, your cleats, your handlebar tape, stuff that needs to be replaced quite often. That should be um, 
bio-based ideally, biodegradable. So if stuff that wears off ends up in nature, it doesn't harm nature. But what's re really important in the circular economy is data. We need more data to improve our products, but also to help, for example, um, replacement parts and repairs. So ideally the, the head unit, the computer, would collect all sorts of data from the bike, not just your heart rate and your power, but also the terrain you're riding on, the weather conditions, the wear on your chain, whether your hubs need um, a new uh, grease, uh, um, whether your tire pressure is in order. Uh, every sort of information to make your bike last longer and give manufacturers more data about how to improve the product, but also the accessibility of uh, spare parts. So what sort of seat post goes into this bike? What SKU does it have? So if you need to order a new one, can you use a digital platform to make that easier for you, easier for your dealer, and easier for the manufacturer? So information is key to make this easier and therefore cheaper, therefore more um, likely to happen at some point. So I think you should be congratulated for so many creative ideas. Like I've never heard that. No one else has ever come up with that concept that I'm aware of. I've never seen it anywhere else and I've been you know in bike media for a long time mm -hmm. so but do you ever get pushback from cyclists saying well hang on a minute don't make me feel guilty I'm already riding a bike aren't I already doing a great thing and now you want to make me feel feel guilty do you ever get any any sort of pushback in forums or from consumers all along those lines uh, of course no one wants to hear this it's a very inconvenient truth right um, but it needs to be told. It is important that we as an industry, but we as a cycling world, take care of our planet because this is where we want to spend our time. We want to be out there. And if it's too hot to ride or if the glaciers fail in the Alps, then a lot of the scenery where we'd like to be is not going to be there in the future. So we need to take action. And as soon as I sort of explain why I'm doing this, then they soon realize, yeah, you might be right and I should change, but... And then... At some point they probably will or not but as soon as we get enough people moving then at some point there will not be another option but to buy a sustainable product so you also talk about mobility as a service in your book and in particular let's talk about bike share and scooter share how sustainable do you think that model either is now or can be um so the, the short-term sharing is not something that's happening a lot in the Netherlands and I don't know very much about it except for the few days here in Frankfurt where I've been using the, one of the, of the modes. Um, I hate to see all these things laying around the streets and not being taken care of, at least it looks like that. And I hear some stories about how long these products actually last before they need to be replaced. And that shocks me because these products are not made to be reused or recycled at all. They're just made to be as cheap as possible, do the job, earn the money and then so there's a lot of work to be done with these companies. But the good thing is that they're experimenting with new models of bike sharing. So you don't need a bike for everyone, but you need just one bike for 10 people, which reduces the number of resources you need in the first place. Um, in the Netherlands, we do have the, the Swapfeeds model. The blue tires are everywhere, uh, where you have a subscription-based model. So the bike is not laying around the street for everyone to use, but it's your bike. And you, show, you see that that is helping to keep the the attachment with the product a little bit better. And what's happening is that a company like Swapbeat is now 
still the owner of that bike, but they're also responsible for repairing that. And it delivers them a lot of data. So they've got their own sort of bike passport digital platform to see which parts work, which don't work, and where to improve on the bike to make this business model more valid because they are responsible for anything that breaks down and not the person that bought the bike in the first place. Um, so I'm, I'm quite curious to see which ones will work, which ones won't work. Uh, but very important from my perspective is that any of these companies start to think about the way they design their products. So we cut down on the resources that we need to provide this service. But the potential is definitely there. The design creativity could improve. Okay, so a mixed scorecard at this yes, stage. Yes. Could be, Little Johnny could do better at school. Um, now, a lot of the imagery in your book and examples relate to road racing and a 3,000 euro bicycle. And you talk quite extensively about policy as of the UCI, the world uh, racing governing body. And I, I just wondered when I was reading that about, well, really, isn't the volume at the, you know, bikes for transport, bike, bikes for leisure market? So why do you focus uh, more on that UCI 3,000 euro road racing bike example? Um, I think first is passion for sports cycling. That's where we started and that's uh, also where we think there's a lot of influence. A lot of people look at the Tour de France and they want to be like the riders in the Tour de France. And a lot of the standards that are set there and then slowly dribble down into all the other types of bikes as well. So if you're able to change the way the UCI regulates what is allowed in the Tour de France and they I believe that they should regulate that there will be more sustainable bikes. Uh, then at some point you will see the industry putting a lot of innovation power into the, the bikes that are out there and that it will trickle down into all the other categories of the bike industry at some point. So yeah, that's the main reason. And what response are you getting from the UCI to your ideas? They're really interested. I think the UCI really struggles with what is their role in sustainable uh, development goals in the future. Um, so they have two roles, I think, promote cycling. Oh, no, three roles, promote cycling, think about the way races are organized, and also their role in regulating the, the cycling industry in the sense that which, which bikes are allowed to join the races and which are not allowed to join the races. And they've got a huge opportunity there to change the entire industry for the better. And at the same time, I also realize that they have a lot of stuff on their plates already. So adding this yeah, is a serious challenge for them. But the industry is pushing them. There's a lot of people within the UCI that want to make this work. The way how is a, is a challenge. But. Well, that's very encouraging. I'm surprised at your answer, to be honest. Having had a few dealings over the decades with the UCI, they're quite a traditional monopoly type organization. So that's quite encouraging, I would have thought. And they're humans too, right? They read the newspapers, they live in the Alps, they see what's happening to the glaciers. They realize that they too have to make um, take their responsibility and do something about this. Very good point. Very good point. So you've set up a foundation called Shift Cycling Culture. Would you like to talk to me a little about that foundation, what you're doing, what your aims are? Yeah. So circular cycling is sort of the geeky part, talking about bikes and, and how many spokes and materials and stuff like that. But this revolution that I'm, I'm trying to realize is not going to happen if just a few individual companies work on this. We really need to get the entire industry and the entire cyclist community to work together. 
So together with, uh, with a couple of others, we set up Shift Cycling Culture as a non-profit organization to try to bring the industry and bring the cycling world together to get the discussion going on climate change and the way it's impacting our sport. Um, and that's working out really well because maybe thanks to COVID, all of a sudden people were online and we organized a few meetings with people from all around the world, from all sorts of different companies that joined that and they were the humans that were interested in sustainability and how to make that part of their uh, daily life or their daily job. Uh, we also came in contact with a number of CEOs who seem to have an interest in sustainability as well. So we, we got a small group of them together to talk about in a very open discussion about where they were with their company on sustainability. And at some point after I think the third meeting, we had some interesting speakers for them to inspire them. They said, it's time for action, guys. How about we reach out to the wider industry to do just what we, like we are doing, basically making a small start. So they came up with this uh, climate commitment, which is an open letter to the industry saying, guys, we are not perfect. We need to change this, but it only works if we work together. So how about we commit to calculating our own carbon footprint, making a reduction plan in line with the goals of 55% reduction in 2030, and invite our top 10 suppliers or customers to do so as well. We launched that last year in November uh, with some of the major brands in the industry. And we're up to about 70, 75 signatories at the moment. So other companies that joined afterwards. And my personal mission for this year is to get 222 companies to sign up in 2022. Uh, and together really spread this message and getting the conversation started at board level in all of these companies and with suppliers, which is super important to get going. And Eurobike has been a boon for yeah, this conversation. It's been on a number of fora, and I think yeah, we'll see a uh, significant amount of companies signing up soon from smaller and bigger brands, and both are important. You're clearly very ambitious in everything you do. I am. We need to be ambitious, right? The climate is changing, yeah. and if we want to avoid serious catastrophe in the future, we need to act now. So. So, so what's on your agenda for the coming seasons, the coming, coming years with, with your work? Yeah, so work with a lot of the uh, project teams that are working on new concepts of bikes. Uh, and really try to get as many examples out there as possible to inspire the rest of the industry of how things can, do, can be done better. Uh, I, I really like to be involved in some of the sort of more ambitious projects on getting a, a truly circular bike on a world stage. Uh, in my book, I describe how I would like to see the 2028 Olympics to be like the showcase of all of the riders being there riding a circular bike and wearing circular kits. So bikes made without finite resources, without pollution and without causing any waste at the end of the lifetime. So we've got six years to do that. <laughs> Talking about ambition, but I think it is an Olympic challenge to get there for the brands. And I think they want to. And if we can get the UCI and the brands to work together on this, we create a level playing field for everyone. It needs to be a, a top-notch sustainable bike and it will be an example for, I think, the rest of the industry, but also for other sports and other industries out there to see what you can do at an Olympic level. Well, you've certainly got huge vision. So Eric, thanks for being an influencer. Very welcome.